Hello Cave Dwellers, Braben and Bell were the masters of the universe in the 80s with their game Elite, a game that totally redefined what we thought was possible with video games. But they weren't the only duo thinking on such a grand scale. In today's tea break, we speak to Ian Robinson, one half of a duo who could have, and possibly should have, dethroned Elite with their game Karma a game which I'm sure very few of you have actually ever heard of. And those who have will know very little about it because not much information came out at the time as to why it completely vanished into thin air. Well, today Ian tells all, including the tragic circumstances which surrounded why the game vanished. Sit tight. Ian, thank you for joining us. Where did it all start for you, sir? When I went to university, there was no such thing as a degree in in computing it didn't exist so I did physics and uh, as part of that course there was a short course in Fortran which you believe and I had to uh, it was all punch cards so you had to go there in the morning put your punch cards in find out that you had a bug when you came back in the afternoon to pick it up which is a terrible way to work Um, but the PC wasn't invented there was no such thing years later I had a girlfriend who had a son who was going to school and he would often get brought back by um, a friend and I got to know this friend and we got on very well despite the fact of us having a gap in our ages. His name was Rick and um, we had a similar sense of humour and obviously um, a similar sense of uh, logic and rational thinking and problem solving, that kind of thing. Um, So um, at the time, we were both very into Acorn computers, of course, and we were very into Elite. Indeed, on one occasion, we went round um, my boss's house with a, a couple of machines and set up teams with me and him on either team. To, uh, basically to see who could get to the first mission first. It took us about four hours, which I think is pretty good. <laughs> so are we talking BBC Micros here? Are we early 80s? Because Elite came out in 1984, I think. So Exactly, exactly yeah. Um, so my first machine was a, a BBC Master. And then in 86, the um, Archimedes. So we were fans of... Uh, elite and at this i mean you're right 30 years ago at this time of the year we spent about three months until christmas just talking about um the possibilities and also and this kind of started with elite because elite is very um it leaves off where we wanted to take off um because it's extremely false now of course you know i understand the limitations of the machine they had to work with and they had to write most of it well ian bell did most of the writing in uh, machine code so it's kind of tough work we wanted to, to see what would happen we thought about what would happen if you could actually do it a bit more for real and um acorn had just brought out the uh, archimedes more or less um and we were on um, versions of this. Um, and at, at, an, at the new year, um, we went down to Cornwall because I had some friends who would moved to Cornwall from London. And they were Scottish. And so there was a New Year's Eve party. 
And I remember distinctly looking across a, a sea of drunken people dancing um, and catching Rick's eyes. We basically both tacitly knew we were going to do this. We were going to start and we were going to make a project. We talked a bit about what would be the best computer to use. Now, the Archimedes was 32-bit, and the um, PC at the time was 16-bit. And if and we, because of our discussions about wanting to be as realistic as possible, we realized that in order to get a sense of scale, we needed to do 64-bit maths. Now, with a 32-bit um, processor, you've got the chance of doubling up and doing your maths that way. With a 16-bit processor, you've got to quadruple up. Um, and so that inherently is going to be slower. And we hummed and hard about it, but it was the logical choice was to do it on the Archimedes. Elite was um, a very good piece of gameplay, but it's actually, for the environment, it's actually all faked. So, you know, you get stars flying towards you and it's hyperspace between suns. And we thought, wouldn't it be fun if you could actually fly between suns and solar systems, which you can. Um, and, um, I mean, we didn't go completely stupid because we didn't actually uh, consider Einstein uh, relativity, but we did consider making a Newtonian universe or galaxy. And, it, and we did. Um, but to get to get the proper scales or the reasonable scales of a solar system, we needed 64-bit maths. So, uh, and we decided that the smallest increment of movement was going to be one centimeter. But that means that you could fly around at ridiculous speeds. Um, but actually, you could be one centimeter away from a space station, for instance. So your your ambitions are starting to take shape. You've chosen the platform, the new or newish Archimedes with its new ARM processor, which you've decided can do all of those things that you need to do. So you've made the decision to develop this game. How formal was the the approach then? Did you set up a company and get an office or how did you go about making a start? No, we worked from my apartment. And we drilled holes in the wall and put cables through them. And we had our own Econet network in my apartment. And, and we actually, um, because of an associate of ours, we, we got funded to a small degree. I mean, an extremely small degree. We, we never had offices. And we never really had much money to um, spend um, Sure. So you got set up in your apartment and uh, you mentioned a, a, a minor financier behind you. Was that a gentleman by the name of Peter Hard? Was that him? It was indeed. Yes. OK. OK. And, and where were the programming duties split? Were you 50-50 or did you concentrate on different areas of the programming? Um, so Rick was um, more working on the assembler and the actual flight loop, as it were. And I was um, primarily working on the environment and eventually the gameplay. Um, and where we came together, of course, was um, because I was producing the actual uh, data that described any particular solar system or the galaxy. Um, he had to then fly around it. So my work was the input to his work and put the two together and you can go and fly in space, as it were. Now, Elite famously had a seed calculation that seeded the universe. Did your universe work in the same 
same way no okay so how was your universe created i suppose it was in it was in three stages uh first off i actually created the galaxy which meant i developed um, routines to randomly produce dots and then to um, influence the dots in terms of their groupings grouping more towards a central uh, elliptical plane as it were or a plane and then then actually running a spin so you actually had a spiral out of it a spiral galaxy and after about seven runs of this i thought that one looks nice and we basically picked it um but these were just dots and they were and you know they're just coordinates so i then had to um had to decide on the types of stars that existed and I had to learn about um, where in a universe, where in a galaxy would you would tend to find various types of stars. I then had to work on the points to work out, uh, to decide what they all were. And given that there were uh, 2,400, it was a lot. <laughs> um Having done that, having the types of stars and their and their positions, the next step, of course, was to, which goes into the second stage, was to progressively work out um, work out what they were, how they um, the the numbers to make them up. I mean, there's a lot of random in this, but it's random that's influenced. So over something like twenty seven passes of of software. I gradually started, I started with something like uh, mass and then went to radius and then went to density and et cetera. And you get temperatures and you get ages and you get all of those things you can deduce out of it. And after about 27 passes, you can deduce an awful lot. It doesn't, you know, so the first few passes were just to work out what the mass and the radius were and the density. And then slowly you can build on that. Having got that, you'll move into the third stage, which is, okay, let's put planets around them. And you, from the size of the, of the sun, you can roughly work out from the current, what we knew, what people theorized at the time. You can work out how much mass was left over and you can, you can play around with people's ideas of different kinds of solar system models that may or may not exist. And you can... Um, produce those around the suns that you have um then of course you've got to get into the environments of each individual planet do they have an atmosphere or not uh do they have water or not you know what what temperature are they in how far away from the sun they are and what temperature etc how old they are has and therefore you can work out has life occurred anywhere so when it comes down to eventually finding out that life was possible on a particular planet of course because it's a game you actually stretch the limits a little bit uh, because you want to produce more life than you actually would have um, and then you play around with how long does it take to produce a technical civilization and then how long it does it take to produce a space-going technical civilization and you end up with a set of um planets that have such uh, life evolved on it so then you can start to move into oh, the fourth stage which is um, a bit more story orientated because you know how old a particular civilization is you can 
you can kind of estimate or guess how far out they have explored their locale. And then you can start to move into the concept of civilizations, which is um, how many civilizations there were in the galaxy. I think it was about 83 and how many stars they've taken over and where uh, where the borders between the civilizations are. And then you start to move into things which uh, are purely story-based, um, and that you, in, there is no seed here. You actually have to work out the story. The bigger picture, and I suppose the name behind the game, was based much more on, on the civilizations and the people that were populating it. Um, very early on, again because of the elite thing, I suppose, um, we decided to make the lowest common denominator not a spaceship, but the person driving the spaceship. Uh, I then went off and I, I devised um, a, a way which I don't think has been repeated to uh, give people motivations to be able to, to want to do something. And um, they would want to do those things, regardless of what vehicle was around for them to do it in. Once you've got that far, you can start to put words into their mouths. If you control the questioning that you can make, then you can get them to answer questions. And as you can imagine at the time, we were very much uh, also into any other kind of sci-fi, which was kind of relevant and one of those has got to be star trek naturally as a user you've got to be a, of an advanced ship in an advanced ship you've got to expect to be able to sense things you've got to be able to expect to be able to talk to people so whereas in elite all you could do is shoot things for us um, shooting things was uh, something that would maybe be 30 percent of the game much more it would be story and intrigue and uh, discussion. So anyway, I'd invented um, the way to give these people motivations and the way to put people into spaceships. And this was kind of independent from Rick, and I managed to get him to write the code to interpret what I was doing. And I remember very well, I remember the day when we flew up to a spaceship um, and asked the spaceship, who are you? And the spaceship said, well, I'm a, I'm a geologist and I live over there and I'm on my way to work and I'm doing this, that and the other. And Rick practically fell off his chair. So the storylines that we had were basically tasks for people to do. They would get in, if they got involved with people, um, then the people would have their own needs, like rescuing somebody or whatever. But Another angle is it allowed you to set up scenarios the player would have, a, have to make a choice about. So, for instance, if you see two spaceships in the sky and one is a policeman and the other one's a thief, which one do you support? If we then stored people's um, histories of their behaviour, you could, you could influence the events that they were presented with. The, the things that happened to them would be um, influenced by how they had previously behaved, hence the karma aspect of things. The name, the name came from that very much. If you had a 
two civilizations next to each other that didn't like each other, but you ha happen to help one side more than the other, then other people from that civilization would befriend you more easily. Um, and you'd find yourself on a particular side in a, uh, a bigger scenario, which could lead to many different things uh, from um, battles with one individual that took three days um, to um, grand armadas meeting, uh, meeting each other and you being on one side, for instance. Um, but for instance, there were um, a couple of civilizations that were extremely hyper-advanced and if you met them, you didn't stand a chance. Um, and there were a couple of civilizations that were dead already, but you would find their artifacts around. So there was, there was deeper story to discover. Getting back slightly to an earlier decision where we decided to make the lowest common denominator a person rather than uh, a vehicle, it meant that the player was also... From a modeling point of view, we also made the player and the game players exactly the same. So uh, in versions that I could, could play, but you can't, um, we had uh, a small spaceship that we called the Hopper, which you could embark and um, using a kind of Star Trek kind of materialization and dematerialization you could actually exit the, the, the main ship, the mothership, and fly around it and go and see whatever you wanted. But um, I went even further than that, uh, and you could actually step outside because uh, you could wear a spaceship. If we assume that you're wearing a spaceship, a spaceship, uh, sorry, a spacesuit, um, a spacesuit is just the same as a spaceship. It's just smaller. And so you could actually physically get outside of all ships completely and just float around in space. And that was kind of cool as well. Another part of Rick's work, and a lot of it was done early on, um, was uh, to do various effects that you could actually um, use. For instance, we, we obviously did lasers, and they were a pair of lasers that uh, you could fire from either side of your ship into a kind of the middle of the screen, very elite-like, I suppose. Uh, we also, from um, took it took um, we took inspiration from the first Star Trek the movie film, which is kind of atrocious, but at the same time, um, instead of having uh, photon torpedoes, we would have energy bolts roughly like the enemy in that. But of course, um, another aspect of this was the transporter, being able to transport things outside. So, you know, it would be very, very boring if you had to, if you went to a space station and you transported goods into your cargo bay. You could just do that with no visual effects at all. And basically it's just a spreadsheet game. Um, for us, what we did was you'd have to transport things into space, which meant I had to design loads of boxes, of course. And then the um, the space station would transport them into itself and vice versa. If you wanted to pick something up, it, it would often be transported into space and then you'd pick it up. 
So there's a whole lot of animation around um, materialization and dematerialization of things. And that was kind of fun as well um, back in those days. So those were the ambitions and some of the technical aspects of the game. Uh, it sounds, it's a game I want to play. <laughs> oh, you're not the first person to say that. <laughs> um, but obviously something had to give, the game had to be released or something had to be released. So where what was the pressure? Because you released, was it? I think it was in 1991, you released Karma, the flight trainer. We did. So was there pressure on you to just get something out the door at this point? Well, there was, but I mean, a lot of the pressure was external. Uh, it, a lot of it was about proving to the world that we were real in what we were saying. Um, and um, the internal pressure, yes, there were, of course there was from Peter, um, but not because we were highly financed, really. Um, you can have only been able to uh, work on what we have been able to release which was the flight trainer. Now, we had to, because of the notoriety and because of the questions about whether we were real or not, we decided that we had to release something to show people that we were real. Uh, and hence, the flight trainer came, came along. And the idea behind the flight trainer was that, yes, people would play, play around and fly around an environment and, and showing that it was real. And they would have a very short three-month story to follow. Um, but the ambitions for the game itself were a, a lot more than that. Um, the flight trainer part of it, the flight trainer story, plays no part in the bigger picture. But um, in early 92, there came the ultimate problem, if you like, um, So in early 92, uh, my co-writer, Rick, uh, died on, a, on his motorbike. And that kind of changed things dramatically. It's very sad because, uh, as you can imagine, I mean, this is three years of work here. And um, during that time, apart from at Christmas, neither of us had a drink of beer at all. Um, it would um, slow down one's thinking and one's capabilities. So we were quite um, restrictive. But I suppose things, things um, fate occurs anyway. Uh, and Rick uh, found a girl and they got married. And she became a widow after three months of marriage, which is tragic again. And there's another story there, um, but I won't go into it because it's not fair. Um, so um, Rick wasn't living in my apartment at the time, but a mutual friend of ours, because I, my apartment is, was at the top of the building, um, but there was a fire escape at the back, uh, a mutual friend of ours came to my back door and told me the bad news, basically, um, and I will never forget it. Uh, and, you know, after that time, I, I was, um, uh, it was difficult to be of great assistance to his wife. She went off to Thailand for a year 
And I took the mutual friend um, to meet her about 10 months later and had a, a month's holiday in um, Thailand. Um, but, um, yeah, the world changed, definitely. Uh, and, you know, it's sad. Yeah. So you obviously thought it might be possible to keep the project going for a while or was that wishful thinking, do you think? Well, I think uh, I think for myself, um, it was partly partly a way of dealing with the grief. When you lose uh, someone, a friend that's that close, and being that intellectually close as well uh, for a number of years, it's quite hard. Um, so there were obviously there were things that I could do to keep myself busy, as it were. Um, but. Um, it's difficult to finish that off when you have to do it on your own. Uh, and I couldn't really bring anybody else in because it was so far along as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whenever we did try and get help, it never worked out. There's only one time we actually got help from a young intern, as it were. And because he made a small mistake, suddenly we had a lot of missing moons in the scenario. <laughs> Luckily, I was able to fix it and find them again. But, you know, it's just because a race starting at zero, not starting at one, he, he lost the inner moon of practically everything. So um, we decided uh, after that experience that you couldn't trust anybody but yourself. <laughs> so um, um, so for most of 92, I, I carried on in some ways because uh, there were things to do. Um, but of course, um, it was a very difficult time for me personally. Um, and, um, you know, enough time goes on that by the time you get to 93 and 94, you really have to start considering where your income is going to come from as well. Um, and I think, I mean, in 92, 94, 94, 93, 94, I, did start to um, exploit the uh, the fact that Acorn machines were in all English-speaking schools in the world, and um, went uh, with a mostly with one other company, um, producing many different uh, programs for schools. It kind of petered out, or at least um, at least that's what the outside world would see. Um, I didn't really want to make any big announcement because um, because it would have a finality for me, as, as it were, in terms of um, saying goodbye to Rick and that period of time. But I can't, I can't say that I necessarily behaved in a rational way completely during that time because it's difficult, as you can imagine. Um, I didn't want to disappoint the fans and I didn't want to suggest that the project was dead um, because, of course, it it was still there. I could still fly around. Um, so it could have come out at any time. Um, now it would be uh, a bit silly. And I remember getting getting a, a, a series of communications from uh, 
a boy in Australia who was 14 at the time and disabled. And his mother was uh, putting in pages about uh, in the letter as well. And I'm just thinking that we gave people a lot of interest and a lot of hope. They really wanted to play it. And it was quite um, moving to actually know that you were touching people all over the globe, not just in England, but English-speaking world. Um, and we never, ever wanted to shortchange people. We wanted to do something for people. Um, and I think the way things ended, it's unfortunate, but never in my mind was any uh, any way, uh, any thought of um, shortchanging people. Uh, and I think that had an influence on me personally as far as uh, how long I allowed the world to think that it might actually happen, that it continued. And the fact that you are speaking today means that in many ways it does still continue. And I hope that uh, a lot of people look back 30 years and remember when they were 15 and, and remember it with fond memories, again, rather than actually being disgruntled by the fact that they never got to play it. But, you know, so uh, someone approached me about um, six months ago probably because of the same 30-year anniversary, uh, but to basically re-release as a kind of retro, along with other games that were around at the time. Um, but he wanted me to sign across rights so that they could actually go and develop it themselves. And I still won't do that. Um, so you obviously still have all of the source code and the assets for the game then? I do, and I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to give them away to anybody. I didn't give them away then. Why should I do it now? Um, so, yeah. Well, whatever. Do you ever do you ever fire it up from time to time and go for a uh, little fly? So, so for quite a while, I've been living in Oslo, in Norway, um, and uh, one of my colleagues, who's now an ex-colleague, has actually been around and seen seen it and flown himself. <laughs> so. Um, so that's fun, but I don't um, tend to fire it up, uh, up that often. Um, but I do recognise that there are certain there is data that doesn't actually degrade over time, and certainly, um, you know, when it comes down to masses and densities and distances and temperatures and stuff like that, it doesn't matter what your processor is, it doesn't matter what your graphics card is, they don't change. They're going to be there. You could do something. It could be in exactly the same environment, but with the source data, could source something else now. That's, there's no problem with that. Um, for the things that I actually touched on in terms of um, uh, society modeling and civilization modeling, I don't think uh, that would still be relevant today. And I don't think the term people have duplicated that so much. I mean, there's um, certain aspects that you can see in other games, um, but not in the same way that we approached it, I suppose. So looking back on Karma then, uh, do you think you had an elite beta on your hands? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, as you, as you say, it took elite several versions to come up with the with Newtonian physics in their own game, we had it in in you know as a starting uh, premise. Um, so I suppose in some ways, because of the communication aspect, 
the sensing aspect and the communication aspect, we were going for a slightly different kind of gameplay. Um, much more like having um, uh, some other game genres, but in space while you're doing it. So yes, you could go and shoot things, but you could also get into intrigues and deeper stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there is a definite role-playing game element to it in the interactions with the NPCs or non-player characters. Right, right. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, just... just um, <laughs> Another thing we another thing is that with Elite, it, it's just and with most other games, it's just you against the computer. Um, for us, we wanted it to be much more um, like instead of a duality or uh, us and them, it's us and them and them. So that it's three way, and you know the, it comes back to the whole idea of karma. It depends who you help, and it depends who you meet. Therefore, but um, giving the player choices. You don't just go and shoot down everything willy-nilly because it's that's the gameplay and there is a particular single direction to follow. But it's a, you've got to think hard about who you ally with. Um, and, you know, that just makes it more interesting, in my opinion, anyway. Well, it sounds fascinating. I'm very pleased to hear that there is still a playable version out there with you. <laughs> Uh, it's it's the world's most exclusive game. You just have to become a very <laughs> close friend of Ian's before yeah. you're allowed to play it. But it is out there, which yeah. is really pleasing. <laughs> but I've enjoyed every every minute of hearing you talk tonight. So thank you so much, Ian. Thank you.